start a new series uh, as I'm finding more and more things coming into my mind and sometimes it can get confusing because too much thing too many things go through my small mind so we're gonna we're gonna go to a, a book that we're gonna be looking at for a while uh, whenever I have the opportunity and, and John is not able to go and, and we also have Dakota that may be preaching a few this summer but we're gonna we're going to attempt this series anyway. We're going to go through the book of Colossians is where we're going to be. Um, and I apologize there are no notes this morning. Uh, it was partly due to my procrastination, and I'll just be honest with that. I'm not perfect either, Steve, and uh, I hope you love me anyway. So, um, uh, But in, that, in saying that, please feel free to take notes as we go. I think what we're going to look at God's Word today is we look at what He has to say. I believe there are things that we really should remember. And uh, as we think about remembrance, of course, today is a day in which we remember the, the death of Christ as we go into the communion table, and, and we'll be talking about that in just a little while. And, and as, we, as we speak truth to one another, as we listen to truth from God's Word, we need to make sure that we set up ways to remind ourselves time and time again, because it's so easy for us to forget what we need to know and what God would have for us to know, and not only know, but also live by. So we are going to be in the book of Colossians, and you might wonder, well, where did I come, where did I come to that? Uh, I was this week looking through some things, what we're going to preach, and as you know, if you've been with us, last week I preached on Galatians chapter 5, and we talked about freedom in Christ and, and how walking in the Spirit looks like love and loving one another, and we're all free to love one another. A few weeks ago, we looked at the second coming of Christ and how that should shape the way we live uh, a while ago, you remember a series that we did on the book of Philemon. Uh, and, and all those, those three series specifically, as I was thinking about what I had preached, and I was thinking about, should I just go and do something, just pick something and go, or should I do something that kind of goes along that theme? And I kept finding myself finding references and finding allusions to those things that we had talked about in the book of Colossians. Actually, going all the way back to Philemon, you will remember uh, that uh, Philemon was sending out a letter to Philemon with Onesimus, and along with that letter was also the letter to Colossae. So actually, the same time period directly, when Philemon was being written to Philemon, Paul was also writing this book to the Colossians. And I found that interesting. And as we look at Colossians, you're actually going to see that there are themes in here uh, that you'll see in Philemon, uh, the love of the saints, the love of one another. You're going to see, actually, there's going to be a section here that's going to talk about the way we live in light of Christ's return. And, and also, there's a great deal about freedom. There's a great deal about um, adding to uh, the faith, which is what was happening in Galatians. If you remember from last week, they were adding rules and regulations to their faith in Christ and, and how Paul categorically said that that is not a way for us to live. And in Colossians, he says some of the same things. And as, we, as I started looking at Colossians, there was a specific passage in chapter 3 that I really wanted to get to, I really wanted to preach on. And I'm reading chapter 3, and I was like, this is great, this is awesome. We've got things about looking to eternity. We've got things about loving one another. We've got things about how to act as Christians and how not to. And I was getting excited about chapter 3, and then I started, I said, well, you know, in order to do chapter 3, I'll have to go back and read chapter 2. And I read chapter 2, and I said, wow, that's really good stuff too. I don't want to miss chapter 2. I said, well, I better go back to chapter 1 and see how it all starts. And then I realized, wow, there's a lot of good things in chapter 1. And so I said, you know what, I want to get to chapter 3, but uh, let's do the whole thing. So that's, anyway, I just share you my thinking process. 
And that's, I kind of worked in reverse this week. So we are going to start Colossians and all the things that we've been talking about, Philemon, uh, the second coming of Christ, Galatians, even what John had been preaching in Ecclesiastes, all of those themes are actually found here in the book of Colossians. It's an incredible book that has so much depth, so much to learn, and I don't know if we'll be able to plumb the, the depths of it as far as we could or should throughout the time that we're together, but at least we can touch a part of what's in there, and that's what my hope is for the next, who knows how many, I say 12, but it could turn into 40, who knows, we'll see. But we're going to be in Colossians, so if you want to turn there, we will be there, and we're going to start right away with Colossians verses, or chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's get a little bit of background, a little bit of a setting, and in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, this is what we see, and it's Paul, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. All right, verses 1 and 2, you say, okay, that's, that's Paul's classic salutation. You know, it's like the dear part of the letter, you know, dear so-and-so. And, and Paul likes to add all these things in. And he, he, he reminds us that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And it's God who gave him that role Uh, And Timothy, our brother, is with him. So Timothy's with him. And and these men are writing to the church of Colossae. uh, The saints and faithful brothers is what they call them. And he gives them grace and peace. And so let's just figure out a little bit more about Colossae. A little bit more about where Paul's at. uh, Where this church is at. And how how things are kind of coming down. And why Paul is even writing this letter. Because without understanding all that background, we might miss some of the themes that Paul is trying to tell us about. So if you would just join me for a few minutes as we look at the background and the setting of where we are here in the city of Colossae. Colossae is a city in the Roman Empire. Of course, at the time of Scripture, you know that most cities are in the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire is basically the whole world. Uh, as, we, as we look at that, we know that that's the, no, the known world at the time. It's, it, the Roman Empire has taken over much of it. And so we see... Uh, that Colossae is a city in Rome. That's going to be important as we go through this book and then we remember the Roman society. Uh, Also, the interesting thing is they are on a road with Ephesus, which I'll talk about in a minute, that is a road that basically connects the Far East to what was then the Western part of the world. There was a, uh, really, it was back and forth and you know Roman roads. If if you were part of uh, the Sunday school class that meets in the New Wing, I know... uh, uh, Ed had talked about this great detail about how the Romans made roads, even some points made concrete uh, to make roads so that they had a great road system, one of the greatest road systems that ever existed and really rivals even the road systems that we have today. And as a result of that, there was a lot of travel happening and Colossae was on one of these main travel routes. And it was a smaller town. It wasn't a big town like Ephesus that was just down about 100 miles from them. But the idea was you would understand that there was lots of travel through the city. And as things are being traveled through, obviously things are left behind. People might travel through and they might leave behind maybe some of their culture. Uh, They'll leave behind some of their religion. They'll leave behind uh, some of um, their language. All those different things are going to be left behind. And you're going to find yourself at this point in history at Colossae and those other cities that are right along that road. They're really kind of a melting pot of a lot of different ideas, a lot of different people, a lot of different backgrounds. And that's going to also be important as we go into this book. Many different cultures and belief systems were present. Actually, they've done archaeology digs where they've found a lot of things that uh, in this region of Colossae. And what they've actually seen is you see a mixture from what they found in archaeology of uh, worship to Roman deities. That would happen as a part of the Roman, you know, the Roman 
Empire, they would be expected not only to worship Caesar, but also the Roman deities, the false gods of Rome. Uh, They also found remnants of a Jewish population, quite a large Jewish population, that apparently had had come over from uh, the Palestine area. And so you you see that is there as well. So you've got Roman deities, you've got Jewish population. They also found evidence of some weird mystic cults that were doing some kind of cultish, kind of you know, really quite strange things as they looked at archaeology. And they also found oriental astrology, a lot of things to do with the stars, the skies, the celestial bodies, those type of things. And so you see, even from history, that this was a, a, a city that was confused, if you will. There was lots of different ideas, and they're all blending together. And we see that happening in the city of Colossae. Now, as I said earlier, Colossae was 100 miles from Ephesus. We've heard of Ephesus. Obviously, the letter to the Ephesians uh, is the letter to the Ephesian church, the a church in Ephesus. Uh, we also know, if you look at the book of Acts, if you want to read through Paul's journeys, that Paul does go to Ephesus for about three years, where he sets up the church, he appoints elders, and really evangelizes. Obviously, people get saved. The church in Ephesus starts. Ephesus was a much larger city than Colossae, had much of the same ideas as far as mixing cultures, and, and yet there was a church that Paul had established, and he wrote to them in Ephesians, and now he's writing to Colossians. Now, the interesting thing about this is Paul did not start the, Col- the church at Colossae. Paul started the, Col- the church at Ephesians, and there was a guy that we're going to see as we read through this, um, and actually, uh, we see a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras is a guy who, apparently, from what we understand from history and the context of this book, is that Epaphras takes the gospel from Ephesus. He hears Paul preach it. He sits under Paul's uh, discipleship, and he learns the gospel. He learns about Jesus, and then he takes that and goes to Colossae, where he shares his faith and a church is founded. Now, as we go back to remember our study in Philemon, another interesting thing, the, the man Philemon, who Paul was writing to to free Onesimus, his slave, uh, actually is a leader within the church of Colossae. So we also see that Philemon is there, and now Onesimus is, going to, is from there. So you're seeing the connection now. And so there's this 100 miles in that day wasn't as long as it might sound because they were on a main road. And so Epaphras was able to travel to share the gospel, and the, and the church is started. This will be important as we go through this book to understand that Paul is writing not to a church that he had planted, but a church that he was simply hearing about, a church that he loved and cared for even though he had never actually been there. And that will be very interesting as we unpack this book. So you remember again, if you know that this is written the same time as Philemon, that Paul is under house arrest at this time. He's in Rome, and he's sending this letter to the Colossians. Why does he send this letter to the Colossians? Well, we need to understand that as well. As I said before, this is a society in which a lot of things are being blended together. And so what starts happening as we look through this book, and you're going to see this theme come out, is that the Christians that were in this new church at Colossae that is trying to grow, all of a sudden are going to have Jewish people coming in, cultish people coming in, or uh, astrologers coming in, and you're going to have, all of a sudden, people are coming in and saying, hey, this Jesus thing is good, but it's, you know, it's not everything. Like, Jesus is great, sure, but so is astrology, and you also need to obey the law, like the Jewish people would be saying, and then other people would say, well, you need to trust in angels, because angels are the ones that are overseeing everything. And, and, and so Christ is there, but there's more to it. And you can add to your faith and make your faith even better if you add other things to it, whether it's the law or whether it's these mystic practice, practices. And so we see that happening. As we go through this book, you're going to see that that is true. And, it's, and as we read in chapter 4, 
uh, when we get there, in chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras apparently comes to Paul in, uh, in Rome and is concerned over the church. Epaphras cares so much about the church that he apparently had a large role in starting up. And he comes to Paul and he says he's concerned over them. And this concern obviously has to do with the fact that false teaching, once again, is coming in. And this false teaching is leading them to add to their faith things that shouldn't be added to it. And so Epaphras comes to Paul and says, Paul, this is what's going on. And Paul, as an apostle, remember, very first thing, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, as an apostle says, it's my responsibility to write to this church to correct their error. Because in the world of false teachers, Paul wanted to set himself apart, just like he did in the book of Galatians. And so as he, as he then will address this false teaching of adding legalism or pagan practices to their newfound in Christ, that's where we're going to see a theme develop through the book of Colossians. And what is that theme? Well, this, there's going to be no question as we go through Colossians, and I would encourage you to be here as often as you can as we follow the, the argument of Paul here in Colossians. The theme is this, that Paul is going to show throughout the whole book that Christ is preeminent. Now, some of you may know that word, but if you don't know the word preeminent, really we're talking about superiority. Christ is first and foremost over everything and everyone. As the creator God, he is over all, and he is superior to all. There is no one like him. There never will be. And therefore, since he is everything and he has the ruler over everything, you don't need to add anything to him because he doesn't need anything. And Paul is going to develop this throughout Colossians. You're going to see some major passages, especially when we get to... uh, When we get just a few weeks from now, when we look at starting verse 15, we're going to see some major passages where Paul wants the Colossian believers to know that no one, nothing, no deity, no pagan practice, no Jewish legalism, nothing can even come close to who Christ is. And then also we're going to see throughout scripture that this, or throughout this book, that it's going to be unpacked time and time again that Christ is superior over all else. And any time we're distracted by other things, it's actually attacking the very person of Jesus. And uh, in Colossians, actually, and I did this uh, last night, I went through this book and I counted how many times Paul directly references Jesus. Sometimes it's in pronouns, sometimes it's in his name Christ, sometimes it's as Lord. But as we look through just this book of Colossians, which, mind you, is only four chapters, it's only three pages here in my Bible, uh, and... In those three pages, in those four chapters, what we see is Paul mentions the name of Christ. He mentions him in some way, shape, or form 74 times. 74 times Paul says, Christ, this, in Christ, or Christ does this, or Christ is this, the Lord. You need to follow the Lord. And and as we look at even verse 15 and going on, you're going to see that there's like 12 instances within three verses. That Paul is pointing people to one person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And as we look through the book, it's going to be time and time again. You're not going to be able to miss that. Paul knows that the Colossian church is being told that Christ is not enough. That Christ is one part, but there's more to it. And Paul says, no, Christ is not only enough, he is everything. He is superior over all. And that's what Paul wants to remind the Colossian church of. And as we go through this, I hope that he reminds us as well. And as a result, you're going to get towards the end of his book, and you know that Paul usually writes theology first, doctrine, this is what we need to believe, and then after he gets done with what we need to believe, then he moves into a part that's like, now that you know what we need to believe, how do we live in light of what we believe? 
And Paul will do the same thing in Colossians because as he develops this theme of Christ being preeminent, Christ being superior over all, he's going to develop that theme and then he's going to get to towards the end and he's going to say, look, now that you know that Christ is superior over all, how then should you live? And so it's going to be kind of a two-part book, as, as many of his are, and we're going to see that argument go from what we need to believe to then how we need to live and how it all works together. And so I'm looking forward and I'm excited as we get into the depth of this book to see what God is going to teach us as we look at Christ being preeminent and superior overall. And what he's going to point around once again is that every practice of our life should be based around the person of Jesus Christ. No one or nothing else. I appreciate what Steve shared earlier as he looked at King Josiah and the idea of taking down the high places. That's a very good analogy to what we're going to be talking about. What is it in our lives that we need to take away because Christ is everything and yet we're trying to add to it or we're trying to replace him or we're trying to care about things that we shouldn't be caring about as much as we do. And hopefully by the time we get through this, we will all have a greater appreciation for Christ and that we will have less of an appreciation for those things that so easily distract us away from him. And so that's a little bit of a background and a setting as we go into Colossians. It's going to be an important book as we look at Paul is addressing, again, false teaching to a church he hasn't even met, and yet he knows what they're going through, and he wants to share with them that Christ is everything. And I hope as we go through this, we would also see that. And I want to say that I know a lot of us say Christ is everything, but let's keep in mind that just because we say something doesn't mean we truly believe it, because if we truly believe it, then our life will reflect it, and sometimes it doesn't. So as we go through this book, we'll see that not only is Christ first and foremost over everything, but also we should live like it. And that's where we'll get to. So this morning we're going to start, we're going to start with a little section here at the beginning of the book. It's actually a very encouraging section. It's a very nice section. And Paul includes these in a lot of his books. And, and Paul is a phenomenal writer, obviously. And he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the truth that is found in here is great. And God is using Paul's personality. And, and Paul just knows how to write a letter, right? He, he, he starts with a greeting and he goes in and he's going to talk about why he's thankful for the church. He's going to get them to the point where they're feeling comfortable with him, and then he's going to unpack this doctrine that he wants for them to understand. So in light of communion this morning, there are some thoughts that I want to draw out as we look at Colossians chapter 1, specifically verses 3 through 8. And we may go back there next week and and look at a little bit more of this Thanksgiving passage, because we won't be able to unpack it all this morning. But I want to take some key elements from the Thanksgiving passage, which is 3 through 8, And I want to say to us today, what is it that we need to be thankful for and what does that look like? And as we go into communion, we can remember that we are thankful for certain things. Paul was thankful for certain things and we should too. We should be thankful for the things in the other people that are here with us in this body. And as we are thankful for those things, it will draw us to the gospel and remind us that Christ is everything. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 1, we are going to start in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you indeed in the whole world, and it is bearing fruit and increasing. As of God and truth, just as you learned from Epaphras, our our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. 
So we look at this passage 3 through 8, and once again, this is where Epaphras is mentioned, and notice there that it does say that he is the one that originally taught the gospel to those who are in the church of Colossae. We also see that he has come to Paul, and he has told them of the love that they have for one another in the Spirit. Love in the Spirit's an interesting comment here, as we just got done looking at Galatians 5. You see the parallel there, right? Like, Love comes as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit, and, and we're reminded of that here in this Thanksgiving section of Paul's writing. What I'm going to do here this morning is I'm actually going to break these verses down going backwards. Uh, this is going to be a little weird, but I think to see the flow of the argument, we're actually going to start at the end, and we're going to make our way up to the beginning of this verse. And then when we come around to it, we're going to see a very important truth about the gospel, about what we're remembering and celebrating today as we go to communion. And so we're actually going to start here with the verses, uh, the last half of verse 5 through verse 8. Last half of verse 5 uh, says this, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you indeed in the whole world as it is bearing fruit and is increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, our fellow servant, he is a fellow minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. I think the first thing that, that Paul, he, he's thankful for as we, as we break it down is he's thankful that the gospel has come to Colossae. He is thankful that the gospel is changing people and the gospel is spreading. We see that Paul is thankful that the gospel is spreading and they are learning the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ that he sets people free from the law of sin and death and from the law and from being bound by anything and yet we can be free to love one another. We can be free to love him and Christ the gospel. That the, the fact that Christ came and the gospel which we'll talk about a little bit later that he not only came and lived a perfect life but he gave his life for us on the cross so that he would pay the penalty for our sins and he would rise again and show that he was powerful over even sin and death, once again showing his superiority. And we see Jesus doing that. And, and, he, and Paul is saying, look, I'm thankful that you've learned the gospel and I'm thank you, fa- thankful that it's spreading and that you are part of that. You see, Paul, why would he be saying this? Going back to our background, Paul is thankful because he started a church in Ephesus and then that church started a church in Colossae and even more churches. And we, we see churches are being spread throughout that province because of the church at Ephesus. And Paul is thankful that the gospel is spreading and not just staying in one place. And he sees that happening. And then he goes back, as we go back then to verse 5 again, the first part of verse 5, as he reminds us that the gospel is being shared and being spread and being heard, he goes back in verse 5 and says this, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, there is hope in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is the hope of heaven. Now, if you remember a long time ago, we talked about heaven here. And we talked about the fact that heaven, even though it's a place, and it's a great place that we can go, more than that, as we look at scripture, heaven is more about being in the presence of Christ himself. And so Paul says, look, the gospel has been shared. That's that's the last, that's, that's what he's thankful for. And the gospel that's been shared brings hope. The gospel gives hope and he wants to remind us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ himself gives us hope in this life. He gives us hope in this life and as we have hope, then we're going to see other things flow from that. 
But as the gospel is being shared, hope is given. Hope of eternal life. Hope of being with Jesus Christ forever. Hope of being in the presence of Christ. And so he says hope, but then he says, but what does that hope then lead to? We're going to have to go back to verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have had for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul says the gospel, I'm thankful that the gospel is spread. I'm thankful that the gospel gives hope. And then he says, I'm thankful that the gospel of hope produces faith and love. Notice this is faith, hope, and love all together, and we've looked at that before. These are the foundation of a Christian life. Faith in Christ Jesus alone, faith and trust in him completely to save us, to sanctify us, to give us life, to give us hope. We trust in him and we have faith as a result of our hope. We know we're going to see him and we're waiting for that day and as a result we can have faith in him. But on the other side of that, we also see in this passage not only faith in Jesus Christ that the gospel produces, but the gospel also produces the love of the saints. I'm going to sound like a broken record as we go back to Galatians. What did we just talk about? That it's all about the lack of selfishness and instead showing love to one another. And that love is the, the absolute opposite of selfishness. And, and Paul, again, is reminding us here, what do we need to be thankful for? We're thankful for the faith and love that has been brought on by the hope of the gospel. The gospel is shared, hope is given, and then faith and love are, are as a result. And he's seen that in the church of Colossae. And I hope he sees that in our church and in the church as a whole. That faith and love will be something that is just natural as a result of our hope in Christ through the gospel. And I think Paul is writing this to the Colossian believers to remind them of a few things. I think he wants to remind us that the gospel... The gospel is everything. The gospel is what saves us. The gospel is what gives us hope. Listen, how easy is it for us or for the Colossians believers to find hope in something else? Maybe for them it might have been hope in Rome. You know, at the time, Rome was the superpower. Like, if you were in Rome, you were pretty safe. There was peace, right? Pax Romana. There was peace. There's roads. It's a good life. And Rome has it all together. And at that time, I bet you people were thinking Rome's going to be around forever. And they could have had hope. And a lot of these believers in this church were Gentiles, Roman citizens. They were looking at Rome and they're saying, Rome could be the answer. And, and would they find their hope in Rome? Or would they find their hope in Jewish practices? Or would they find their hope in angels and mystic things? Or would they find their hope in the stars? Or would they find their hope in cults? And where would they find their ultimate hope? Paul says the ultimate hope comes as you've heard the gospel that has been shared with you. So our question today for all of us, I believe, is this, is what is your hope? What is your real hope? Not hope of, oh, I can't wait to see what's going to happen tomorrow, or like, uh, uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but instead I can't wait. It's, we know that something's coming. What are we hoping in? What are we looking at and saying, I can't wait for this? Is it... Do we find our hope maybe in our society? I hope not. But do we find our hope in our country? Do we find our hope in politics? Do we find our hope in our good works? Do we find our hope in other things that we're believing that we shouldn't? Do we find our hope in other people that aren't Christ? Where do we find our hope? And Paul is reminding the Colossian believers, and I believe reminding us, find your hope in the gospel and the gospel alone. 
And I think also as we look at faith and love, then Paul is also saying this, like, what do you love or who do you love? Are you loving yourself or are you loving one another because of the gospel? As Christ has been preached to you, are you loving people and as a result of that, are you living a selfish life of loving yourself? And I think that's a very honest thing that we can question and ask. And as he's talking to the Colossians, like, yes, I've heard of your love and I know you're loving one another in the spirit, but make sure you keep that going. And and there is love that should be the result of the gospel. Or have we taken the gospel and made it all about us? See, it's interesting that in this passage, it is faith in Christ is linked with love of the saints. Because our faith is not just an individualistic, personal thing that nobody else has anything to do with. We're actually going to see a beautiful passage when we get to chapter 3 about how our faith in Christ should draw us together and how our faith in Christ really is a corporate practice. And, and so we are reminded here that our love of others and our faith in Christ go together. And so Paul is reminding that we need to continue in love as we know the gospel and as we have faith in the gospel. And finally, I think Paul is reminding where faith is rooted, and that is in the gospel. Where is our faith? What are we trusting in? Trusting in ourselves, trusting in our possessions, trusting in our money, trusting in other people, whatever it might be. Who are we ultimately trusting in? And Paul wants to remind the Colossian believers, and I believe wants to remind us, that our faith needs to be in nothing else other than the gospel. So I've said the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Now what is the gospel? And many of us define the gospel in many different ways. If I asked you what the gospel was, some of you would go through the Romans road with me. Some of you might go through a whole of scripture. Some of you may just give me a sentence. Some of you uh, may kind of fumble over your words and not really know what to say the gospel is. Well, I want to say as Paul talks about the gospel in Colossians, I think the gospel has one fundamental theme. There's lots of parts to it, but what we're going to see is something very important. And what we're going to see today is that the gospel is Christ. Christ is the gospel. It's not a formula that we follow. Uh, Not that there's things wrong with like the Romans road or things like that. I'm just saying it's not like this formula that if we fill in all the dots and cross all our T's, if we do everything we need to do, then somehow that's the gospel. And we have to have it neatly packaged all the time or we have to have a certain way of presenting it. And all those things aren't bad in and of themselves. But I would say the very core of the gospel, as we see in Colossians, is Christ and Christ alone. Christ himself. Verse 3. So we've gone, we've gone all the way from 8 now back to 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He uses Christ. He talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Master And then as we go over, actually, uh, just a a page over, we're also going to see in verses 13 and 14 that this is also mentioned. In verses 13 and 14 of the same chapter, what does Paul say? This is after he he continues the thanksgiving into a prayer section, which we'll look at next week. But he says in verse 13 this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus has given us the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has given us redemption. Jesus has passed us from the domain of darkness, of sin, of death, of being, of, 
a slave to all those things and now into the kingdom of righteousness that he has made us to he has made us righteous in him if we accept Christ and our righteousness comes from Christ alone and it's Christ it's Christ it's Christ Christ died Christ rose again Christ was buried Christ lived a perfect life all these things but it all focuses back on Jesus Later on in Colossians, Paul is going to talk about the mystery of the gospel. What is the mystery? Well, the mystery, he says, is Christ himself. This is what we can come to understand. That the gospel, as I say gospel, as Paul talks about the gospel, it is rooted in Jesus Christ. His work, his person, what he's doing now. It's all about Jesus. And so as we go to communion, I'm going to read another passage, and I want to bring four things to mind as we go to communion in just a few minutes. Four things to mind that I believe as we think about the gospel, but I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to start. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, asking what the gospel is. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 and see what it has to say there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 9. I'm going to say a few things about this passage as we think about the gospel and we think about its prime, how primary it is and superior it is to all else. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So this is Paul and he's saying, this is the gospel that I preached, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he goes on and says, not only did he appear to them, but he appeared to James and then finally appeared to Paul. But what Paul is telling us here, what is the gospel? He says, this is what I've preached to you of first importance. Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he raised the third day. See, the gospel, there's a lot to it, but it all focuses on Jesus. So my first question as we go to communion today is where you are sitting, have you truly accepted the gospel? In other words, have you committed to Jesus? Have you gone to Jesus and given him your life and given everything over to him because he is the good news? He is the gospel that we don't have to, that we don't have to obey a law to be saved, that we don't have to find a way in ourselves to be saved because we can't. Instead, we found freedom in Christ and Christ is the gospel. The fact that Jesus was sent to this earth Christ was sent for us to come to this earth, to live as a man, even though he was perfect and he is God. He comes and he lives as a man, 100% God, 100% man as he lives on this earth. He faced our temptations, he he faced trials, he faced pain, he watched people suffer, and he did all that and he lowered himself, he humbled himself down, and it's all about Christ. And he did that for us so that then, as he ministers and he shows the world and he shows his followers who he is, he then gives his life on the cross and he says, I'm going to take the punishment for the sin that everybody has committed. We've all done wrong things. We've all been selfish. And he says, since they've all sinned, I am going to give my life, the perfect life, in place of their 
eternal lives. If they'll only come to me in faith, if they'll only accept my sacrifice, then I will sacrifice my life for them. And Jesus did that. Jesus gave his life on the cross. He gave it willingly as God, as the perfect person. He gave his life so that he could take the penalty for the sin that we've committed. And he does that. And then three days later, as Paul writes, three days later, Jesus says, not only am I going to die for your sin, but I'm going to prove to you that what I did took care of sin and it took care of death and I'm going to rise again. And God raises Jesus from the dead and he comes out and he says, I have power over sin and death. And this wasn't just made up. That's why Paul's talking about the people that saw it. There was witnesses of this. And and Jesus comes and says, look, I'm back. Like I told you I would. Jesus was the gospel, is the gospel. The way he lived, the way he died, the way he rose again. And then he calls us to faith and repentance in him. To trust him. To have hope in him. To love him and love others. This is what his calling is to us as we accept him as the gospel. That our life would be changed by the gospel. Our life would be changed by Jesus Christ. So as we come to communion this morning, I want to call out to any of you who may be sitting here that have not come to the point where you have given your life to Jesus as you know all that he's done for you. You know you're a sinner. There's nothing you can do to get to heaven. There's nothing you can do to be with him. You're not perfect. There's no hope there unless you come to Jesus and Jesus alone who sacrificed himself for you, who rose again to prove that he does have the power over sin and death. And no matter what you're facing, he has the power over that too. And Jesus wants you to accept him and say, come to me. He says, come to me. And that's what he wants you to do. Come to him. Ask him for forgiveness. Throw yourself to him and just beg him to save you. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You don't have to say all the right words. You don't have to say a certain prayer. You just need to come to him. Just come to him and give your life to him. And as we remember communion, we're going to be remembering his death, the body that he broke, the blood that he shed so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And it would be a shame if you leave today without understanding that. It would be a shame today if you leave and you are not forgiven of your sins and if you have not accepted the sacrifice that he has given on your behalf. Make today the day you you fall on your knees and say, Lord, I need you. For us who have come to know Jesus and we know the gospel and we have accepted his promises of the gospel, here's some things I want us to remember as we go to communion. Remember your faith in Christ, that faith in Christ is everything, that you can't have faith in anything else other than Christ himself. So as we go to this table, remember, I want to draw your attention back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers and what does he say? I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preach to you. Why are we coming today to the communion table? To remind ourselves and to remind one another that Jesus and his sacrifice was enough. That Jesus and his sacrifice is what we need. That Jesus and his sacrifice is what we have faith in. So let us remember. Let us be reminded of our faith in Christ as we partake of communion. Also, as we come to communion, let it be a a a physical symbol not only of what we remember that christ has done but a physical symbol of how we love one another because in christ we are all one in christ and therefore we are all in this together and we should love one another despite our imperfections whatever that might be and we love 
one another. And that sh- this communion is not just about us. It's not just about me sitting in the chair and saying, oh, I'm taking my cracker and my juice to remember Jesus, and it's just about me. No, it's about us. It's about remembering the death of Christ together and showing our love. It's a beautiful picture, not only of what Jesus has done for us, but that he's brought us together through his death. So let let it reveal our love as we go to communion. And finally, let us rejoice in our hope as we come to communion. This isn't all about to be somber. There are some somber moments in our faith. Jesus did have to die a horrible death for us. But ultimately, that death that he died, that gospel that he lived, his life that he gave for us, even though at times can be somber, ultimately it has given us hope. Real, joyful, honest hope that we know that he's coming back again, that we know that we're going to live forever with him and he will be our portion, he will be everything to us forever. So as we come to communion, if you'd remember... First of all, receive the gospel. Remember your faith. Remember, reveal our love and rejoice in hope. I pray that we do those four things as we come to communion this morning. And so with that, if those who are asked to come forward to be ushers for communion, if you'd come up, please.